Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show. Giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR. 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Brainwaves. It's Mark here on the panel, and I'm joined today with uh, Brainwaves panel members, oh, sorry, team members, Kiara <laughs> and Kathy, and we're in conversation with Maria Castonis, uh, the author of The Good Greek Girl. So welcome, Maria. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Um, so, Maria, can you please tell us about your book? The Good Greek Girl has two intersecting story arcs to it. The first is my experience and recovery of uh, mental illness. I was hit with a very severe episode of depression in 2008, landed in a psych hospital for five weeks, another four weeks uh, off from work and then returned back to work. And it was an interesting time in my life. I was at the height of my career. I was incredibly successful and I never thought I would be the kind of person because of my own ignorant, if you like, perceptions of mental illness to see depression would happen to someone uh, like me. So that's one part of the story. And the second part, as a result of the illness, I started to reevaluate and reassess my relationship with my own culture. I grew up in a very traditional Greek family. I'm not a very traditional Greek girl. I didn't do what was uh, expected of me. I didn't marry a good Greek boy because I like girls instead. As I say in the book, good Greek girls don't grow up to be lesbians. (laughs) They grow up to marry boys who are doctors or accountants or lawyers. And I really kind of carved my own pathway against the sort of traditions and the customs that were expected. So... I ended up reconciling my relationship with my culture as a result of the illness. And so those two arcs are fused together to become the good Greek girl. Yep. And um, why did you decide to write about your experiences? I think at the heart of the book and my reason for writing the book, it was about giving voice. In the case of mental illness. What prompted me to actually write the book is when I returned to work and I led a, still am a senior executive in the Victorian government, had a team of about 15 people. The only person who I knew when I was away for, for as a result of my illness was my CEO. So I come back to work after nine weeks away. People don't know why I've been away. And I got these long lingering questions. Hey, Maria, why have you been away for so long? And, you know, dot, 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 tell us, tell us, tell us, tell us everything. I thought, well, what the hell do I do? What do I say? And someone actually about day two said to me, is it true what they said about you? And obviously, you know, works like to improvise explanations, gossip around the water cooler. And somebody flat out asked me, did you have problems recovering from the anaesthetic from your operation? (laughs) And I thought, oh, my gosh, what do I do? And I decided at that point literally two or three days back, that I was going to be very open and very honest. And the reason for that 
was that I didn't want to give any more power to the illness. It had been such a hideous experience and I truly did go to hell and back like most people have experienced severe mental illness that was life-threatening that I thought I'm not going to give the illness any power. Mm. Uh, And I also thought I could do some good. So I started to be very open about my experience and that opened the floodgates and people were very open about their experiences with me, either as someone who had mental illness or someone who at mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. And that led me to writing a, a, a piece about stigma and mental illness published in The Age, and from that sprang the book. So that's one aspect about giving voice to mental illness. And as I started to write the book and started to explore Greek culture, it was about giving voice to a Greek woman's experience of Greek culture because our culture almost tells us not to speak about it. You know, I ask people, you know, if I ask people, tell me about a contemporary Greek Australian male writer, people will within 30 seconds will say Christos Chalkas. Mm. Uh, ask someone about, tell me about a Greek female contemporary writer and people go, ooh. I don't know. So I wanted to bring both of those experiences together and give them voice in the book. Mm. Thanks for that, Maria. Um, Chiara here. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the mental health experiences that you wrote about in your book? Yeah, I described the onset of my mental health episode as a perfect storm. I had these storm clouds gathering in my life that I hadn't been aware of. That included um, a family genetic predisposition to mental illness. I'd probably had a couple of undiagnosed episodes of mental illness and untreated, which meant that the next one would be be worse. Uh, Perfectionistic personality, which puts me at high risk in terms of of expectations, difficult deaths of my parents who died under very complex circumstances within the space of a couple of years. So all these clouds were lurking in the background. And then one day they just collided and they unleashed a storm of epic proportions. So I was hit by a force 10 gale in relation to my depression. It wasn't, oh, I'm feeling unwell and then I'm going to get worse. It was like I started at at, at 10 out of 10 and woke up in the middle of the night and felt very, very unwell, unsafe to the point where I literally thought I just want to pick up my car keys and go to the Westgate Bridge and jump off and didn't and, and managed to kind of stumble through for about a month thinking this is just a massive stress attack. And then for some reason I decided to go onto Beyond Blue's website and they've got some very valid clinical questionnaires and I did one of those questionnaires and it rated me off. I keep joking, I'm a high achiever. I got 10 out of 10 on the depression (laughs) questionnaire. Isn't that fantastic? But I got a pop-up window that said, you're suffering from severe depression, go and see a medical practitioner straight away. And I ignored that because I suffered from self-stigma and I said, someone like me, high achiever, executive, I've dealt with life's adversity, I will get through it because I saw it as a character flaw, as a weakness. At that point, I did not see it as an indiscriminate illness that knows no socioeconomic bounds, doesn't care how many degrees you are, doesn't care how clever you are or what kind of job that you have. So I progressively got worse, I got life-threatening and uh, I did end up seeing a doctor who hospitalised me within 24 hours. So that happened over a period of four months. So four months for the compromised solutions by the sounds of it that you were trying to put in place to to engage in what you probably thought as a type A personality was just another challenge. That's right. Yeah. And in some ways work gave me an excuse to try and push through. It's like, okay, I'm going to go to – I was terrible at home. I couldn't get out of bed. It was the close classic kind of symptoms, but I'm going to pull – I don't care what it takes. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and I'm going to go to work. And I was fortunate I had my own office so I could close the door because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't 
fit for work. <laughs> but I could look at my list and say, if I just do these two things, I will get by. And, and that's how I managed. And no one will know. And no one will. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And no one will know. Yeah. And it was also easy for me to cut myself off from people yeah. because I have a type, did have, I don't have any more, I've learned from my illness, that kind of type A personality and people sort of thought to themselves, oh, we haven't seen Maria for a while. She's probably doing her usual workaholic 16-hour days and she will eventually surface. Yeah. And that's how people explain my absence and, you know, dropping out because, you know, it is that isolation, dropping out of friendship ring uh, rings, not wanting to connect with people. Yeah. When all, all the time I was crossing the road so I wouldn't run into one I knew because I, I couldn't even talk to them. Mm, it's that sick cat routine, isn't it? That yeah. We tend to crawl under the house and hide from life because we suspect that we're, we're not going to make it and we're certainly not acceptable to any any input from anyone else. That's right. Yeah. But if I, if I managed to get through the working day, it mm. gave me enough strength to deal with that at night. So it's kind of like I used all my reserves to get to work got through work and then would go home like a sick cat, crawl yeah. under the doona yeah. and think, okay, I've just got to catch my breath and get through another day tomorrow and tomorrow will be the day when I will get better. Yes. Right? That's the that, that's what I thought would happen. So just keep compressing and that's compressing right. and compressing. And, and all that happened was that I got sicker and sicker without necessarily realising it. Yeah. How many people right now, when you reflect on, on what you've experienced, would be somewhere along that trajectory now who, who may for for want of knowledge and the wonderful work that people like you do in in exposing these sort of um i suppose these paradigms would be sitting there going no i can just hold it together yeah. maybe drink a bit more maybe see a few less people and maybe just keep showing yeah. up and it'll be okay yeah I, I i now say the the most courageous thing you can do is go is pick up the phone yeah if all you can do is pick up the phone go online Talk to someone, it could be friend, if you can't get to a GP. Mm. That's the best and the most positive step that you can take and it is not an admission of weakness. Because I, I contributed to my own illness by not looking after my well, – I thought I was looking after myself but did all the wrong things mm. instead of admitting, yes, you do have a mental illness and it is an illness. Mm. It is not a character flaw mm. and perhaps had I sought treatment – it's one of those sliding doors moments. We'll yeah. never know. But if I had sought treatment at the time when I realised I was ill, could I have averted the hospital stay? Could I have avoided, you know, yeah. I was acutely suicidal? Could I, could I have avoided, you know, going to some very dark and, uh, and, and horrible places? And you wonder, you can't help but wonder whether some of those are unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's a, it's a really tricky one, that, isn't it? It is. It is, absolutely. And so that's why I talk very openly about my experience. And it's the same reason why I write is if I can just help one person do something a little bit differently uh, to what I did, then it's been worth, uh, to a certain extent, the risk of, you know, I joke, I call myself a professional depressive. You know, it's the risk of being so open and so public um, uh, about my experience that, it, that, that, that there is, there's also hope that you can recover. I mean, for some, you know, all of us around, the, around this room will know that for some mental illness will be a single episode and you will make a complete recovery just like you would from influenza or any other illness. But for others like me, I now have, and I admit quite openly to having a chronic mental illness that I absolutely need to manage. But I can live an active, a meaningful and a purposeful life by managing um, my illness. It sounds as though, Maria, you have such a greater awareness of yourself and of your um, mental health issues as well. Can I ask around the where it sounds as though before you were in 
um, a place where you didn't want to recognise mm. what was happening for you. What what changed? Where was um, was there a light bulb moment? Yeah, there was. I, so so I got sicker, and I, I I reduced my options to I call it to like a binary option. I either had to accept I had a mental illness or see a doctor. And if I wasn't going to do that, I deduced my only option was to take my own life because uh, there was no, I got into such a point of illness. There was no past. There was no future. Only this, only this abyss that was known as the present. And if this is my life, then I didn't want to live it. So I developed quite a detailed suicide plan that I kind of kept in my back pocket as an emergency it was in some ways I thought it was the only control I had um, over over my life and as I said earlier work was a safe place and I only ever thought of suicide at home at work I never thought of suicide maybe it was the daylight hours maybe it was the different environment maybe it was being around kind of the busyness of, of, of people and one day, this is probably about now four or five months after the, the depression hit, I was having a particularly bad day. I thought if I get a really strong cup of coffee, that will help. And I walked out of work and I work at the top end of Collins Street, the Paris end, and I looked up and I could see the Sofitel, you know, 55 Collins Street, that big tall tower. Mm. And I looked at it and I thought, I wonder if I could jump off that right now. And that's when I knew it was the point of no return. And I went home, didn't even bother going back to work to put my plan um, into effect and I sat down with everything that I needed and as time passed it's one of those strange situations where I didn't know it was a minute an hour hours I came to this little this realization started very softly it was like voices in my head but not those kind of voices you know that said you're not going to do this you're not going to do this you're not and it got louder and louder and I realized heck I'm not going to do this and that was the light bulb moment and I had to go back to my little flawed decision matrix that said, well, if I'm not going to take my life, then I have to admit I've got depression and I have to seek help. And it was at that point um, I saw help. It's a very logical kind of thinking process is either this or this. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how I rock and roll, really. Mm. And that's how the like, decision matrix, that's what I do. It's sort of like I brought my work into it. But that's how I that, that That's how I. In I a way, it. that's what saved you then. That, it that... did. And, and the GP. Most brilliant GP um, who I saw, I think if I hadn't um, had seen this particular GP and it struck somebody else, may not have had, um, um, has been as helpful as it was. Mm. Great. Look, uh, we're just going to take a little quick break now. We'll be back with you in a few minutes. We'll listen to a little tune by Courtney Barnett. Is something worrying you? Need someone to talk to you? Having trouble at work or at home? Call WIRE Women's Information on 1300 134 130, Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm. Talk to a woman who cares. It's free and confidential, Victoria-wide. You can talk to us about anything. You can also talk to us in your own language through our telephone interpreter service. So call WIRE on 1300 134 130 or visit wire.org.au. Wire is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back, listeners, to Brainwaves on 3CR 855. Uh, we're speaking with Maria Katsonis about her memoir of Breaking Out and Breaking Down. So uh, back over to Kiara, I think. 
Thanks, Mark. Um, Maria, in your book, you wrote a what I'd probably describe as beautifully tragic chapter on um, depression and your experience of what depression was like for you. Um, and when I read your book, I was saying before that it's, it was a chapter that really um, hit home for me. Um, and I think it was very, very well written in terms of putting into words the experience of what depression is, that unless you've been through it, you cannot do Um it would be wonderful if you could read out some of that chapter for us and for our listeners. Yeah, so the, 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 I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs and it's about that sudden onset that uh, I experienced. I abruptly woke in the middle of the night, bathed in sweat, my chest constricted, gasp, gasping for breath. It was as if someone had thrown me into a pool of blackness and I was drowning. My mind started to turn inward of its own accord, experiencing its own warped reality. The ordinary antique white of my bedroom walls acquired a sinister sheen, shimmering with doom. The downlight spouted an eerie foreboding, a trickle at first and then a shower that drenched me in fear. My heartbeat pounded, reverberating throughout my body, the amplified boom, boom, causing my heart and my hands to tremble. Calls of distress wrapped around me, unhurried and purposeful. Disconnected from reality, my crippled mind was incapable of directing even the most simple act of picking up the phone to call someone. I lurched out of bed and crawled into the corner of my room to protect myself from the escalating malevolence. I woke the next day in the same corner, the world drained of colour. A grey pallor hung over me, my limbs heavy and my movement sluggish. I didn't understand what was happening to me. I attributed the symptoms to an extreme attack of stress that would eventually run its course, except there was no end to the attack. Day in, day out, the symptoms persisted. It took every ounce of strength I possessed to force myself out of bed and go to work, only to spend the day paralysed in front of a computer screen. Wow. Powerful stuff, Maria. Yeah, something... It was a hard, as I said earlier when we were waiting to go on air, it was a hard passage to write because you're trying to make something that's very abstract. How do you bring it, as a writer, how do you bring it to life? I was working with a writer, a writing mentor on the time, and she said to me, it is the duty of the writer to make the abstract concrete. <laughs> and so it's, a, and it's a, but that is much easier said than, than done. I almost had to unpick every single moment to say, well, what did it feel like? What did it look like? So I think that's why I use phrases like coming, to, you know, spouting from the downlight because it was an imaginary, yeah. but my mind thought it was uh, real and I had to kind of get that reality to convey it to someone who might be reading it and has never experienced mental illness. So appropriate metaphors uh, juxtaposed in a way that makes it, um, makes it mean yeah, something. Yeah, I decided very early on that I wanted to write uh, a very authentic memoir and a very authentic experience mm. of mental illness. Often you hear words such as debilitating or crippling or um, you know, unable to function. What does that actually mean? Mm. And what does that actually look like on a day-to-day level mm. for someone who's had no experience of mental illness? So again, that's part of the whole giving voice um, aspect of the book of uh, giving voice to mental illness. Mm-hmm. So Maria... How did you eventually go from wanting to suicide and ending up in a psychiatric hospital to where you are today, able to live a full and active life? It was one step at a time. So, you know, hospital, to a certain extent, it was a relief to be in hospital. It's a very strange thing to say. But in hospital, I didn't have to pretend Mm. anymore. I could admit 
that I was ill and I needed treatment. Mm. And I got very good level of care where I was and we found the right mix of medication that, you know, treats my my illness. After five weeks away, I still needed a four weeks um, off because I needed time to adjust to go back back to work. And I kind of went back to work not really knowing what to expect. So I kind of gradually um, um, eased my way uh, in, then started um, to write and then started to reassess a little bit. I mean, don't go through an experience like I did where you almost lose your life to not thinking and reflecting. And I decided that I wanted to live my life very differently. I would have said I was that classic person who lived to work before I was ill. Now I work to live. And I developed a, you know, stay well plan. For me, it includes very obvious things like, you know, medication, psychiatrist, psychologist, but it's friends, sunshine, nature, children, laughter, reading, the sea, the things that make me feel good about life. And I did lots of workshops at the hospital I was in, but there's one that has really stayed with me. And it was a prescription for happiness. Because mm. what people don't realise is that psychiatric medication doesn't make you happy. <laughs> I don't take my drug every day and I enter happy land. All it does, it, it, it takes the illness away. It just means I have a stable mood. Mm. And I think happiness comes out of the simple things in life, the sort of things that I took for granted before I was ill. And one at this workshop, and I still you know, hold this very true to heart, three things for happiness someone or something to love and for some of us it's fortunate it can be your partner for me i love my nephews dearly and also my cats yes i will sound like sad cat lady now but (laughs) my, my cat has helped me when i've been ill and he is actually in the book Something to do that you're passionate about. For some of us, we're fortunate. It could be paid work, but if it's not, it could be volunteering at 3CR. Mm. It could be doing patchwork quilting. It could be gardening, but something that gives you meaning and person. And the third is something to look forward to. Mm. Yes, it could be the big overseas trip or holiday around Australia, but it could be catching up with friends for a drink on the weekend or going to see a movie or, Mm. you know, babysitting my nephews or whatever it might be. And I really use that as as a framework for... For, for staying well mm. in addition to my stay well plan between the two of those. It's a fabulous distinction you make there, Maria, around around the treatment of symptoms that the medications can sometimes affect and the experience of having a full, rich and meaningful life. And there's a big distinction there. We can treat symptoms. That doesn't make the person well. It just will reduce mm. symptoms. Uh, and having said that, there's a place for reduction of symptoms mm. and medications but the rest of it is still yeah. uh, within the agency of the human being. And things like what you've spoken about, the reasons for happiness, uh, how you bring about happiness. Mm. And I, I guess I also have a different outlook on life because I, same, I came so close mm. to losing my life mm. that I m- will make the most out of every day that I can now. I don't, and I don't take anything for granted anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I've made some decisions. I now only work, I do paid work still in the government, but uh, I only work four days a week. It gives me that fifth day to focus on writing. I do mental health advocacy Mm. um, with Beyond Blue to even just hang out. You know, my oldest nephew's now 19 and he won't get get out out of bed before midday. So it's like, you know, (laughs) could be just hanging out with the afternoon with him. He's 19. He's 19 and listening to him grunt, yeah, yeah, (laughs) or whatever it might be. But, you know, that's the kind of adjustment. And the other interesting thing is I've actually made a decision about, you know, where I want to work and how I want to work. Yeah. Uh, I probably would have said before illness I was on the fast track, yeah. classic type A. Well, 
Not so much. Not so much. <laughs> they're more important. For me now, they're much more, having lost those simple things in life, yeah. much more important than the next promotion, the next rung, rung up the ladder and working a 60 or 70 hour week. Indeed. It's given me some, you know, a new frame, perspective and priorities. Yeah. Maria, I'm, I'm aware that we're just about out of time, but one thing that uh, I think I've heard quoted uh, from you is there's a certain element of mental illness representing a death and a birth of life, and I, I sort of almost heard you talk to that then in terms of it, it, it stopped something and began something yeah, else. Yeah, uh, I describe mine almost as the classic hero's journey. If mm. you think about it, there's only five stories, they say, when you write a book, and mine is the hero's journey. It is about how I did find redemption, if you like, and forgiveness and love um, as a result of my illness. Having said that, I'm not a happy clapper who says I love my mental illness. Um, I don't. You know, I wouldn't wish what I went through upon anybody. But I do need to learn from it and I do need to take those other things from it, I think, just to become a better person. Indeed. Well, look, uh, we are just about out of time, so I'd really lo- we'd like to thank you for coming in, Maria, and sharing your story with us and the world more broadly. More strength to your arm. And I just want to end on another quote of yours, and it's from um, an early interview uh, that you did after you wrote the book. And it has you quoting that uh, your attempts at being a, Greek, a good Greek girl uh, ended with you saying, I am a good Greek girl, just an unconventional one. Absolutely. And right. I want to thank you all for uh, having me on the program today. It's been just an absolute joy uh, to speak about the experience with you all. Thanks, thank you Maria. so much. So uh, thank you, listeners, for listening uh, today. Uh, you can uh, listen to podcasts of our show at brainwaves.org.au and download from iTunes. Feel free to send us feedback or suggestions for shows via email at brainwaves at myfellowship. That's mifellowship.org. And uh, be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 5 p.m. for another episode of Brainwaves. We'll go out with a with another record of um, Courtney Barnett, De Preston. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.